This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 25, from modernity to post-modernity. I'm going to start with a little anecdote, and I'm going to take you back to July 2019, um, shortly after a comedian named uh, Volodymyr Zelensky won the Ukrainian presidential elections and um, somebody named Donald Trump was the American president, which some of you may recall, even though four years ago in your lives was, was quite a while ago. Um, and at that time, during this, there was a very important phone call that took place where the new Ukrainian president was making his introduction to the American president. And the American president decided to use this phone call to pressure the Ukrainian president to look for incriminating evidence involving um, Joe Biden's son's business dealings, um, suggesting that if this incriminating evidence were not produced, that he could withhold a large aid package that the United States had for Ukraine. Um, this, as, as those of you who might recall who were following politics carefully in high school, became the occasion for Donald Trump's first impeachment hearing in November 2019. One of the people who testified at that impeachment hearing was a lieutenant colonel in the American military named Alexander Vindman. Um, who was in charge of European affairs for the National Security Council in Washington. Um, and Vindman was a, a career officer who had come to the United States with his father and brothers as a young child escaping from Soviet Ukraine in the 1970s and was always very grateful to the United States for taking him in. Um, let me, there was also a wonderful satire about this phone call that was in the New Yorker. I'm going to read you a little passage of it because it was kind of brilliantly done. Um, but let me first say that Alexander Vindman was the only person on that phone call who actually knew all the languages involved. You know, so he actually knew English and Ukrainian and Russian and so understood what everybody was saying without a translator. So if anybody had a good understanding of the phone call. It was Alexander Vindman, who was then called upon to testify. Um, but first, this is, how, um, this is how the scene was described in the New Yorker satire. Um, President, it's a conversation between Zelensky and his advisors immediately, a, a, an imagined conversation, a fictionalized conversation between Zelensky and his advisors immediately following this phone call. President Zelensky, look, I'm pretty new at this. What's the protocol for this sort of thing? Advisor, you mean when the leader of the free world demands incriminating evidence about the son of his main political rival while dangling an urgently needed $391 million aid package, all as the eastern third of our country is being occupied by the same ruthless autocrat who almost certainly helped said leader get elected in the first place? Zelensky, so you're saying that there is no protocol. Advisor, you're a quick learner, sir. 
Um, so that was the satirical fictionalized version. But I'm now going to take you back to the actual, actual introduction or beginning of Alexander Vindman's testimony, which he gives at the impeachment hearings in November 2019. And he began, he began his testimony about the content of that phone call by speaking to his father and thanking him for having made the right decision to get his kids out of the Soviet Union and into the free country of the United States all those years ago. And he says, Dad, I'm here to tell you today, do not worry. I will be fine for telling the truth. Um, here in this country, one does not have to be afraid to tell the truth. And when I heard Alexander Vindman say that, well, first of all, I just wanted to hug him. <laughs> But I also thought, wow, that was really not the English language truth. That was really truth the way Václav Havel used the word truth. And that was truth the way the dissidents under communism used truth. That was truth as the thing that would save you. you know, that was truth as that which has the power of giving meaning to life, of emancipation, of grounding subjectivity, of what you live for and what you die for. You know, and it was a kind of truth that I hadn't heard, you know, really since the dissidents of the 70s and 80s. Um, and it was a very beautiful moment. So I wanted to start, I wanted to start from Vindman's invocation of the word truth and how Havel used that word truth. And then kind of use that to kind of go back through the course and look at how truth has played itself out um, as a motif of, of various questions. Enlightenment, let me go back to enlightenment. So enlightenment is contrasted to romanticism, but there's a way in which enlightenment is its own romantic story. And it's a romantic story, it's a love story about falling in love with human reason and the potential of human reason, of our ability to reach truth, our human capacity to reason, to think, to understand the world as it actually is. And this gives us that Cartesian concept of the self as the I think. You know, what makes us human is that we are thinking, we are thinking beings. Um, Truth is about is something you get to through reason. Enlightenment then goes on you know, to replace God and tradition with science, with rationality, um, but above all with the exaltation of human reason, of human potential, of agency, and this rejoicing in our potential to grasp the world, to know its truth. You know, to understand it as it actually is, and in doing so, to make it better. This is the basis for the political philosophy as well. It's the basis for liberalism. It is because we are beings possessed of reason. It is because we have this capacity to understand, to reach truth, that we deserve to be able to create our own government. 
that government should be based on the consent of the governed. Popular sovereignty depends on a respect for human beings as thinking, reasoning beings. There was a mood to enlightenment which was less fiery and romantic and more about calm and classification and order. There's Isaiah Berlin's famous analogy of the jigsaw puzzle, that the world is a big, complicated jigsaw puzzle, you know, and with each piece we put in, we get closer to seeing how the whole thing looks. It's going to take a while. We're not going to have all the pieces ready tomorrow or the next day or even the day after, but we're moving steadily in that direction. You know, and every piece we put is another step closer. Um, this is where that sense of forward motion comes from. We're always going forward. You know, every piece that you put in the right place is a forward step. You don't go back. You don't go sideways. You go forward. Um, and this, this self-consciousness about going forward in some ways is is less an ideology than it is a kind of mood and an attitude. Um, now, beneath this all is kind of lurking the threat of God's absence. Zygmunt Bauman talks about God being on a protracted leave of absence from which he may or may not ever return. But this, this ever-present threat of of, here is your, your fancy German word for today, Bodenlosigkeit. It's also on your handout. It means groundlessness. It's one of Arendt's words. Um, this thread of groundlessness. In the absence of God, what is there to ground us? How do we reassure ourselves, even of the existence of the world, even of the correspondence between what we see and what's there, you know, if there is no God? Can reason rise to that occasion? Um, with Hegel and Marx, we got a kind of intensification of linear time in a kind of historicist chronotope. So now time wasn't just time, time was history with a capital H. And it's not just that it was moving forward in general, it was moving towards a kind of telos. And at the same time, we have the rise of subjectivity, the psychoanalytical self, the phenomenological self, the existentialist self. There's the I think, I will, I desire, I think an object. That was Husserl's phenomenological self. But they all depend on a self, a belief in a self. Um, and modernity is a lot about working out as God fades into the background and then vanishes into air, the tension between subjectivity and telos, between history and the self. And structuralism then comes in later, already in the 20th century, as an alternative source of, of order and meaning, a shift from the diachronic to the synchronic, a radical shift from history to looking at the synchronic plane which doesn't reject linear time, but brackets it. See, once you have this idea that Husserl gives us of bracketing in your head, it's very hard to ever get it out of your head. Then you start thinking about what can be bracketed. Um, since the Enlightenment, 
all of intellectual history is going to ponder the question of what is the real legacy of the Enlightenment? Um, can we have too much rationality? Can we have the wrong kind of rationality, as Husserl believed? Was the Enlightenment a good thing or a bad thing? So philosophically, the Enlightenment is giving us telos and subjectivity. Politically, it's giving us liberalism. And it's also giving us the rise of nation and class as modern categories for understanding human society. And these kinds of categories are always mediating between the singular and the universal. So you notice that philosophers really like to talk about the singular and the universal, the particular and the general. Once you get into sociology, history, political science, you're in the realm of all these mediating in-between layers where you're talking about religion, ethnicity, nation, class. There are ways that you mediate between the singular and the universal. There are alternative structures for thinking about the world, for thinking about identity. Um, ideas will come to be associated with socioeconomic classes and with nations. Um, I think I've, I've tried to encourage you in this class to, to push back against what are often kind of tacit assumptions that certain ideas or certain philosophies uh, are monopolized by or belong exclusively to or originated purely in some particular group. I mean, one of the things I really want to convey to you about intellectual history as a field is that it is radically cosmopolitan. Ideas move around. Once they are out there, once you say something, you don't know where that will go. You don't know who will hear you, and you don't know who will hear the person who heard you, and you don't know who will hear that person. Um, there, there are no people who actually live in glass bubbles. You know, really, we live in this world together in different ways. And ideas move around, often in unsuspected ways over long periods of time, via routes that seem wildly improbable and coincidental, which we could not have predicted. One of the things I did try to anecdotally give you a sense of is how intellectual history moves by encounter. And sometimes you can capture that biographically. Often, often those moments of encounter are kind of lost. Nobody has documented them. But there are these moments that we can capture when, when Engels and Marx meet, when Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre meet, um, when Roman Jakobsen and Claude Levi-Strauss meet, um, when Angela Davis meets Herbert Marcuse, um, when Franz Fanon meets Sartre, there are moments when you can kind of actually document, you know, encounter among thinkers. And out of that, something new comes. And that's how ideas move. That's how intellectual history moves. That's what makes it exciting. That's what makes it unpredictable. Um, I left you with the encounter between Havel and Michnik um, last week at the end of that lecture on that mountaintop which in some ways was wildly improbable because neither one of them was particularly athletic, but they both made it to the, the or is particularly athletic. Um, Adam is very much still alive 
and still fighting in extremely admirable ways. Um, but not athletically. <laughs> but they both make it to the top of that mountain. And out of that conversation comes something extraordinary. And I'm, I'm going to leave you in about another half hour with um, an encounter between Jan Potoczka and a Polish philosopher named Krzysztof Michalski. But these moments of meeting you know, are, are important. Um, okay. Um, the avant-garde, which you've only got one lecture on, but they quintessentially respond in some ways most radically to the rise of nation-building and nationalism and the recreation of the map of Europe as a map of nation-states after the First World War within aggressive, passionate internationalism. You know, and it's one of the very stunning things about them. The avant-garde's insistence on trying to use all possible languages, on publishing journals in as many languages as possible, as declaring borders passe, you know, as declaring any kind of limitations passe. And there was something very inspiring and magical about that moment. Um, it's a very short-lived moment of the avant-garde, and the avant-garde, I think one of the reasons it, it burns out is, is less the internationalism, although one can't do a control study on real life, and more that radical nihilism as radical freedom, that sense of everything is possible and there's no safety net, which is, again, this feeling of Bodenlosigkeit. Um, but they share Satra's idea um, of radical emptiness is radical freedom. At a certain moment, they make this leap from radical nihilism and radical contingency to radical utopianism and radical determinism. You know, and in that sense, they are kind of metonym for modernity, which begins with disruption and fragmentation and strives towards wholeness, is always looking for wholeness and looking for groundedness. Um, rejecting the old order and the old sources of grounding, recognizing the height, recognizing the groundlessness, and trying to overcome it, trying to find a new source of grounding, asking how we can rebuild a home in a world without God. Once we get to Nazism and Stalinism, to various fascist movements, to totalitarianism, we are now talking about social engineering on a grand scale, which in some ways is kind of like the Enlightenment project gone mad, the kind of the Frankensteins of modernity, the idea that everything can be engineered, including human beings. Everything can be categorized and classified and sculpted and perfected and calculated, controlled, mastered, optimized. The appeal was also what Georg Lukács found so seductive about Marxism, Hegelianism, which was the wholeness. Hegel gave you the whole, what Lukács describes as the all-pervasive supremacy of the whole over the parts. And that wholeness felt like a way to overcome groundlessness, a way to bring everything together. Um, when existentialism comes in, especially in Sartre's version, 
he looks at that groundlessness and that emptiness and says, we need to create ourselves by acting. We need to, to ground our own identity by making choices. The burden of making those choices leaves us in this state of, of anguish, of anxiety, um, which is ever-pervasive guilt. Um, and guilt, then, in existentialism, is like power for Foucault. It is everywhere. You can't escape the guilt, because guilt is inherent in making choices. And the condition of life is such that choices very often are such that no available choice is innocent. There are moments when all possible choices cause suffering. The, the former communist author Kessler, um, who becomes one of the most important memoirists of communism and of his break with communism, as well as the author of the most important kind of Roman Aklef about the Stalinist show trials called Darkness at Noon. If you want to commune with the Moscow trials of 1930, you could read Darkness at Noon. It's a classic account. It's not a pleasant book. Um, but if you want to go into that moment, it's Kessler's book, Darkness at Noon. This is what Otto Katz draws on at the end of the Slansky trial. But author Kessler, who wrote a famous essay called The God That Failed, writing about his past as a communist, says in the end, each of us former communist carries a skeleton in the cupboard of his conscience. Added together, they would form galleries of bones more labyrinthine than the Paris catacombs. It's in that context that I want to return to Jan Patochka's striking generosity towards Heidegger's engagement with Nazism. Um, and this was one of the things that I found in the archives that I found shocking when I first read it. And I, I'll, I'll remind you of the story that you know, Heidegger had, Patochka always knew what Heidegger had done. Patochka was there in Freiburg studying with, with Heidegger in 1933. He knew exactly what had happened. And then he went back to Prague, you know, and he spent the war under Nazi occupation, and he saw his friends get killed in the Holocaust. So it's not like he wasn't paying attention. In 1966, Heidegger gave this one interview to Der Spiegel, where he agreed to discuss his engagement with Nazism, on the condition that it not be published until after his death. The editors honored that condition um, it was 10 years between the time Heidegger gave the interview and the time he died. Heidegger died in 1976. Immediately after his death, Der Spiegel published the interview. Patochka's students then smuggled a copy of that issue of Der Spiegel to Patochka in Prague. And on one of those old cassette players, they recorded his comments and then transcribed them. And Patochka was strikingly generous. You know, he said, well, of course, today it's obvious what Nazism had been. But if you were German in 1933, maybe you would have felt like you had no choice but to try it out. And I, I found that shocking, you know, in, in a variety of ways. 
um, and spend a lot of time discussing it with Czech and German colleagues. But one of the things I want to point out in connection to the former Nazis and the former Stalinist was something that my, my friend Ivan Krastyev pointed out to me when I talked to him about it, who grew up under communism in Bulgaria. And he said, Patochka gave his Czech, Patochka forgave his Czech friends who were Stalinist. That was part of his circle of dissidents at the end of his life. There were former Stalinists and former victims of Stalinism. So why would he, by the same token, not forgive Heidegger for his Nazism? And there was a sense of that was the zeitgeist. That was the spirit of the times. And what people knew who survived Nazism and Stalinism was that very, very few people who lived through those experiences got out with clean hands. Most people, if they survived, made compromises in some way or another. Given what Heidegger did, why is Heidegger still so important? What is it about his philosophy that has stayed with us so unrelentingly? And his choice to become a Nazi is so haunting precisely because his philosophy was so important. It was the moment when centuries of a subject-object paradigm that had dominated epistemology in particular and philosophy in general was suddenly kind of aufgehoben, was suddenly overcome, you know, and transcended into a philosophy of embeddedness. And the key word here is embeddedness. That Dasein was not a Cartesian cogito. It was not just a thinking consciousness. You know, it was, it, it was some kind of being that was deeply embedded in the world, involved in the world, caring about the world, up to stuff in the world, thrown into the world, doing things in the world, shaping the world even as it was being shaped by it. Gvorfenheit, thrownness, was a way of describing this condition of being always already thrown into the world and of being always already thrown into history. We're always already here in a certain time and place at a certain moment, not of our choosing. Nobody chooses the time and place of their birth. But from that place, from that moment, into which we are thrown, we then make choices. We then are responsible for how we act within that thrownness, within that embeddedness. Um, Dasein is both radically thrown, geworfen, and radically ungrounded, again, bodenlosigkeit, um, because to live authentically means to live in the state of unheimlichkeit, of not being at home, because we are always already proceeding towards our own non-being, towards the impossibility of our own being, towards our own death. That is to say, we're always already on the way towards nothingness. 
So how can we ever be anything other than ungrounded? Um, and there is something about this that speaks very viscerally in a way that Descartes couldn't and Kant couldn't and Husserl couldn't, that speaks very viscerally to the human condition. And the notion of guilt, which Heidegger raises and then doesn't himself engage with in a very impressive way, is fundamentally bound up with where he leaves us. We're embedded in this world. We're thrown into it. And from that place, we must make choices. And we choose how we live. And we choose whether or not we live authentically. All of these questions become particularly intense in the 20th century because it's such a bloodbath. You know, all of these philosophers were European elitist. They all believed in various ways that Europe was the pinnacle of civilization, you know, that the height of civilization took place in the culture of which they were from. And of course, the paradox here is that Europe in the 20th century was a bloodbath. And you just, you're face to face with barbarism. Heidegger gives us historicity. Um, which is essential to any kind of grappling with the 20th century. And he does it in a different way from the way that Hegel does. He gives us historicity. He gives us an alternative to Hegel for historicity. And we need history in order to grasp the 20th century. The 20th century is so important because the stakes are so high. You know, it's a situation of the kind that Hegel describes as changes in scale becoming changes in kind, or quantitative changes becoming qualitative changes. Let me just read you some of the death tolls of, of Stalinism, uh, the, the latest numbers that we have, which could change. The great terror, as it happened in the Soviet Union, just really between 1937 and 1938, is currently counting 681,692 executions. The collectivization famines between 1931 and 1933 killed about three and a half million people in Soviet Ukraine, about a million and a half in Soviet Kazakhstan, about half a million in Soviet Russia. Between a million and a half and three million people die in the gulag at the Soviet camps. Um, the Nazi and Stalin regimes together between 1933 and 1945, between the Baltic and the Black Seas alone, kill 14 million people. In World War II as a whole, some 40 million people are killed. It's just a mind-boggling scale for any kind of thinker to get their mind around. Postmodernism is a belated response to this terror. It's a belated way of saying never again. Um, it, it's, it's a way to go back and look at the revolutionary legacy and say, we didn't do something right. We have to try again. Um, Helene Sisu, who is a wonderful writer, I hope you all go on to read, a feminist post-structuralist, um, a, a close friend of, of Derrida's and a a fellow Algerian Jew, gave a lecture at Stanford in the 1990s at which she said, 
When they stormed the Bastille, they forgot the Sorbonne. And everybody stood up and cheered. The Sorbonne's the university. <laughs> and very, very seldom at a place like Stanford do people actually stand up and cheer, but people stand up and cheer. When they stormed the Bastille, they forgot the Sorbonne. We have to completely go back to how we learn, to how we think. Structuralism promised that there was something solid to hold on to. There was a structure that promised a certain stability. Post-structuralism said, no, there's no closed system. Therefore, there's no stable structure. No determinate meaning is possible. For Derrida, a stable structure implies a closed system united by a transcendental signified which is inherently totalitarian. You know, for Arendt, totalitarianism is defined by that effacing of the boundary between victim and executioner that comes from the effacing of subjectivity itself. You know, for Derrida, the notion of a transcendental signified is itself you know, something that contains the hidden potential of totalitarianism. There's nothing, he says then, to hold the structure in place. The center, the sacred God, be it imminent or transcendent, it doesn't matter, it doesn't exist. Um, language is unstable, Derrida says, and meaning flickers. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's a deficit of meaning. That doesn't mean there's no meaning. If anything, for Derrida, there's a surplus of meaning. It's not that there's too little, it's that there's, there's too much. Now, critics of postmodernism say that a surplus of meaning is in effect the same as no meaning, like multiple authorities is effectively the same as no authority. But Derrida would say, no, infinite is not the same as nothing. There's a big difference between nothingness and infinity. Everywhere, Foucault would say, is not the same as nowhere when he talks about power. There's a difference between everywhere and nowhere. Um, Karl Marx was in some ways untimely when he wrote All That Is Solid Melts Into Air. It was not true in 1848, but that's what happens under postmodernism. Zygmunt Bauman, the Polish sociologist, takes up this idea and conceives of modernity as an attempt to replace the old solids with new and improved, better, harder, tougher solids. Postmodernity he calls liquid modernity. He says that's when we give up on replacing the solids with better solids and we embrace the idea of liquidity, of fluidity, of slipperiness, of what is ephemeral. Derrida would insist that deconstruction would always represent the least necessary condition for identifying and combating the totalitarian risk. It brings the risk, though, that if there is no determinate truth, then what is there to fight for? Then what is there to hold on to? Just when we think we have nowhere to go, later in his life, Derrida goes back to Marx and to Hegel. And he writes a beautiful essay called Specters of Marx in the 1990s about 
his in particular and maybe more generally our collectively inability to truly say goodbye to Marx and Hegel. And he does this in a deconstructivist mode. He says, there is more than one of them. There must be more than one of them. So it's a kind of, you know, it's a kind of post-structuralist reading of, of Marx and Hegel. Um, and he takes off on this idea of a specter is haunting Europe, a specter to come, and looks at the multiple specters of Marx. Um, he describes the essay as a haunt, hauntology and the need to reclaim the inheritance of the multiple heterogeneous spirits of Marx. That all of these spirits of Marx, the whole ontology of Hegelianism, of teleological time, will continue to haunt us forever. Foucault says something similar in a much more succinct way, and I'm going to um, read you this passage. And he says, but to truly escape Hegel involves an exact appreciation of the price we have to pay to detach ourselves from him. It assumes that we are aware of the extent to which Hegel, insidiously perhaps, is close to us. It implies a knowledge in that which permits us to think against Hegel of that which remains Hegelian. We have to determine the extent to which our anti-Hegelianism is possibly one of Hegel's tricks directed against us, at the end of which he stands motionless waiting for us. It's a beautiful passage. Postmodernism, which originated in the critical sensibility of the left, has now become a kind of weapon of, of, of the right. Um, Hannah Arendt talked about truth and lies in trying to understand what had happened under totalitarianism. And she said that the pre-modern lie, it was like a tear in the fabric of reality. And the careful observer could find the spot where reality was torn and sewn back together. There was always a seam. By the time you get to these totalitarian ideologies of the 20th century, Arendt said, you're no longer dealing with a tear in the fabric of reality. You're dealing with a complete reconstruction of reality so complete as to be seamless. There's no tear to perceive. Moreover, she said, ideology has the virtue, or the advantage rather, of being more believable than actual empirical truth because it can conveniently edit out all of the arbitrariness and all of the chance occurrences that pervade actual reality. It can make everything that happens an example of some higher law. By the time we get to post-truth, to this kind of neo-totalitarianism, like what we see today in Putin's Russia, it's a different, it's a different kind of lies. Now it's a kind of undermining of the notion that there is such a thing as truth in the first place. One day, there's one vision, one false vision of reality, and the next day you've thrown it out and tossed out a new one. And the next day you've thrown that out and tossed out a new one. Because anything is possible, and you have your facts and I have my alternative facts. And so now, rather than giving people 
a version of reality that is false, but has its own logic and consistency from day to day, now you're undermining the notion <coughs> that there is anything like reality or truth in the first place. And this is a whole new level of Bodenlosigkeit. In that context, I feel like it's an excellent time to go back and reread Havel and reread Adam Miknik and look at this moment where even rejecting the notion of any kind of grand narrative, you go back and believe that there must be such a thing as truth. The philosophical arc here goes from epistemology through ontology to ethics, or a notion of truth as subject-object correspondence to an understanding of truth as that which is contrasted with lies, of authenticity as that which is contrasted with inauthenticity. What comes in the middle is history. Now everything is profoundly historical. I now want to, as, as usual, leave you with some anecdotes about this history. Adam Miknik um, and the philosopher Krzysztof Michalski were both students of Leszek Kolakowski in Warsaw in March 1968. When the demonstrations began and Adam was imprisoned and everybody was thrown out of that department and the Department of Philosophy shut down, a lot of the students emigrated Kowalkowski and the other professors were thrown out and or emigrated. And Krzysztof Michalski returned to the university now without his friends and without his advisor under whom he wanted to write a dissertation about Heidegger. And so a friend of Kowalkowski's sent the young Krzysztof Michalski to Jan Patochka in Prague. Um, and said, that's the person under whom you can write a dissertation about Heidegger. Um, Krzysztof Michalski was born in 1948. Jan Patoczka was born in 1907. So over 40 years separated these two men. What brought them together was a shared conviction that Heidegger, at that particular moment, in the communist bloc in the 1970s, could be an antidote to Hegel. That Heidegger could be the thinker who could help us see that there could be meaning without wholeness. And there could be some kind of truth without proceeding inexorably, inevitably, towards a certain telos. Um, writing his dissertation by correspondence with Patochka, Krzysztof felt as if Heidegger was like the eyes in certain portraits that seemed to be looking at the viewer wherever he or she may be standing. Heidegger was the philosopher who gave him the sense of the weight of every step of his life, was what gave him a sense of life as responsibility, ironically, in certain ways. But it was what Patochka took from Heidegger as well that it was a philosophy of responsibility because we are always already in the world. We are always already responsible for it. You know, and responsibility, Patoshka would say, the, th the thing about it is that we carry it with us everywhere. 
that it's not just a contingent relationship to this or that, it's an ontological trait of Dasein itself. Perhaps, uh, perhaps meaning and truth were not things that could be grasped like you hold them in your hands, um, Patoshka said but that didn't mean we could give up on seeking them because it was our responsibility to keep looking. Um, and this is what he later wrote up in essays called Heretical Essays on the Philosophy of History, the first one of which um, Krzysztof Michalski managed to smuggle in to Poland and publish in Polish translation at a time when it was easier to publish in Polish than in Czech. Um, the philosophical move in all of this, Kolokolsky and Patochka and, and Michalski, was to say that a robust subjectivity is not what relativizes truth, it's what grounds truth. And truth and subjectivity are connected through responsibility. After Patochka died in as a result of brutal interrogation in 1977, in the years that followed, Krzysztof Michalski managed to get a fellowship to study at Husserl's archive in Germany. He then managed to convince a West German colleague with a West German passport to go into communist Czechoslovakia and start to smuggle out Patochka's archive. Um, that project of smuggling out Patochka's archive eventually became the center of an institute called the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, in Austria, which was the neutral country that was closest to, closest to Prague at that time, which is still where Patochka's archive is. Um, okay, I know I'm kind of running out of time, but let me tell you, let me tell you a couple more stories. Um, I want to say a word about forgiveness um, and then a word about Christianity. So let's, let's return to God briefly. Um, Arendt acknowledges that it's Jesus who discovers forgiveness. And it's not only Arendt who forgives Heidegger. Derrida forgives Daman. And both go on to write about forgiveness. Love, Arendt writes, in the human condition, by its very nature is unworldly, and it is for this reason, rather than its rarity, that it is not only apolitical, but anti-political, perhaps the most powerful of all anti-political human forces. The act of forgiving, she says, can never be predicted. It is the only reaction that acts in an unexpected way and thus retains, though being a reaction, something of the original character of action. Forgiving, in other words, is the only reaction which does not merely react, but acts anew and unexpectedly, unconditioned by the act that provoked it. How can we understand her love? How can we understand forgiveness? How can we understand Heidegger's silence? How can we understand betrayal? Heidegger took over the position of Husserl's assistant from Edith Stein. Edith Stein was not enamored of Heidegger. She was, though, in love with Roman Ingarden, Husserl's other student, his Polish student who, who had also followed him to Freiburg. I sadly don't have time to go into detail about this story, which, as you might imagine, is a story I love. Um, 
During the First World War, Edith Stein was a fanatical German patriot, and Roman Ingarden was a Polish patriot, and that ends up coming between them. In any case, in the end, Ingarden marries a Polish woman, and Edith Stein, heartbroken, asks him to burn all her letters. She asks him that the day she receives the letter saying he's, he's married the Polish woman, and he asks him to burn all her letters. He does not burn them. Um, in that way, he betrays her. This is also, of course, how I know this whole story. So I am the beneficiary of this betrayal. Um, she converted to Catholicism. She becomes a Carmelite nun. The Gestapo comes for her in 1942. She's gassed at Auschwitz as a Jew. Years later, teaching in Krakow after the war, Roman Ingarden meets a priest named Karl Wojtyla, who is very interested in phenomenology and its connections to Aristotle and to the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. And Ingarden begins to tell Wojtyla about Edith Stein. And Wojtyla is fascinated and asks Ingarden to put together a private lecture in one of these undergraduate seminars for Wojtyla and a few of his friends on Edith Stein, which Roman Ingarden with meticulous care does. And it's a beautiful lecture about her work and extremely respectful. Um, Ten years later, Karl Wojtyla becomes Pope John Paul II. As Pope, Karl Wojtyla canonizes Edith Stein and makes her a saint. You could say that this was in some ways a kind of consolation prize for Ingarden's having left her in favor of the Polish woman. She gets to be sainted. Um, at the canonization at St. Peter's Square in Rome on the 11th of October, 1998, Pope John Paul II says of Edith Stein that she was someone with whom her whole being, with her whole being, she sought the truth. So there's that word truth again. Um, and I'm going to leave you with just one more, one more anecdote about Karl Wojtyla who canonized Edith Stein, um, and she was her deep admirer to the very end. Karl Wojtyla took part in this Institute for Human Sciences that, that Krzysztof Michalski created around Jan Patochka's archive. He was a patron of the Institute. And they convened a conference um, about the legacy of the Enlightenment at which Karl Wojtyla was also president, who by then was no longer Karl Wojtyla, but Pope John Paul II. And he listened very carefully to everything that was said for two or three days of the conference, and then gave his own final remarks. And then he said, all of this talk about the Enlightenment and reason and rationality and our ability to find truth, this is all, this is all wonderful. It's all well and good. But we should just keep in mind that all of this, the Enlightenment, modernity, it's all just a brief moment in the autobiography of God. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.